Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Certainly over the past few weeks, many in our church and really all of us who knew them have had occasions to mourn the passing of two dear saints who have gone on to be with the Lord in glory. And, and these are ladies who, whose lives certainly have touched and shaped the lives of many people here. And there are many occasions throughout life for us to grieve. We do grieve the loss of a loved one to death. We can grieve the failing health of our own or of a loved one. We can grieve the loss of independence, a divorce, the loss of a job. And while the Bible does have a lot to say about how we should deal with our grief when we experience these losses, I believe that in this beatitude, Jesus was specifically talking about the kind of mourning that Jeremiah describes in Jeremiah chapters 8 and 9 and the kind that he demonstrated throughout the book of Lamentations. And that grief is, is a mourning over our sin. It's a mourning over the devastation that it has brought to God's good world. The blessed mourning that Jesus was talking about comes from a place of agreement with heaven and compassion for earth. It flows from the heart that seeks first the kingdom of God and also breaks for those who are lost in the dominion of darkness. Another way of thinking about this twofold expression is hate the sin, but love the sinner. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. That's the kind of heart that Jeremiah had. One that ached for God's kingdom to come, but also ached for the sinful nation who would suffer God's judgment. He was heartbroken because the people of God had turned from God and they showed no sign of repentance. So in chapter 8, Jeremiah pleads with them to turn from their sin back to God. Really, that's the message of the entire temple sermon, Jeremiah 7, 8, and 9. And in this sermon, Jeremiah has literally gone into the temple of God and preached this no-holds-barred message of impending judgment to God's people. Chapter 7, which we're not going to look at today, but we did look at Wednesday night at Reconnect, and hopefully if you're reading through the Bible with us, you've already read that. In chapter 7, Jeremiah lays out the sins of the people, their, their hypocrisy and the impending judgment that God is going to bring to them from the Babylonian Empire. And if you'll turn to Jeremiah chapter 8, he wants them to turn from their sin with divine hatred for wickedness. Basically, the first point Jeremiah makes here in chapter 8 is that because God is holy, we should hate sin. Because God is holy, we should hate sin. God hates sin. Therefore, Jeremiah hated sin. Jeremiah, we often call him the weeping prophet. And he was an exemplary mourner whose vision of sin was as close as humanly possible to God's vision of sin. Already in Jeremiah, we've seen the prophet lamenting for the judgment that God is going to bring on Judah and Jerusalem. He's already bemoaned their calloused blindness, their stubborn refusal to face reality. And here Jeremiah definitely points to the ugly truth of the reason for God's wrath. Their sin which has broken their covenant relationship with God. But one of the problems is the people of Judah didn't have a hatred for sin. Let's start in verse 4 and just listen 
to how God through Jeremiah describes the people's reaction to their sin. Say to them, this is what the Lord says, When men fall down, do they not get up? When a man turns away, does he not return? Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. No one repents of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Each pursues his own course like a horse charging into battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons. And the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. How can you say we are wise for we have the law of the Lord when actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely? The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped since they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to other men and their fields to new owners. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of My people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. The people of God refused to listen to God. They refused to repent of their wickedness and return to God. They didn't even know what God required of them. And the priests and the prophets who should have been teaching that, instead, they weren't taking the people's sin seriously. They were just preaching these feel-good messages of peace and prosperity. The people are not ashamed of their loathsome conduct. Jeremiah said they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush anymore. Does that sound familiar? We live in a day when the most perverted and heinous of sins are openly celebrated. We're even expected to applaud wickedness and to call what is evil good. Certainly, we live among a people who have forgotten how to blush. And so sin has now become a dirty word. You don't dare call someone's alternative lifestyle a sin. How dare you judge me? Who do you think you are? That's called hate speech now. Do you know that in Canada they've actually made it a hate crime to misuse someone's preferred pronoun? You can be arrested for that. And in some countries the government has taken it upon themselves to have the power to go into a home and remove a child from those parents if their mom and dad don't heartily agree to let their children be used as guinea pigs for hormone therapy and sex change operations. A few weeks ago at the Southern Baptist Convention in Phoenix, Arizona, an LGBT group protested outside the convention center wanting Southern Baptists to, quote, remove homosexuality and transgenderism from their sins list. I'm sorry, but that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. We don't have sins lists. We don't come up with that stuff. That's God's job. Is it not God's place to determine what is right and wrong, sin and not? 
And does God not hate and judge sin? Yes, He does. But it's not because God is some big old meanie mean man in the sky who's just waiting for any excuse to hurl down His wrath on poor unsuspecting folks. You see, people's issue with sin today comes from one of two misunderstandings of God's nature when it comes to sin. The first is that God is just this mean old wrathful, vengeful old man with a big white beard in the sky who just hates everybody. That's not the Bible's picture of God, is it? But it's just as much a fallacy to see God as this big old softy teddy bear in the sky who loves us in just sort of this permissive sense where He just doesn't care about our sin because He just loves us so much and He's got bigger things to deal with anyway, like running the universe, so God just kind of just is happy just to have us here. That's also not what the Bible teaches. We have to understand that God's love and wrath, they're not like the human emotions of love and anger that we experience. God is love. And God is holy. And God's wrath, His hatred of sin, is really a beautiful part of His majesty and love. God's wrath isn't an irrational emotion that waxes and wanes. It isn't uncontrolled rage ready to make heads roll. Rather, God's wrath, and I want you to catch this definition. This is important. God's wrath is His consistent and decisive opposition to sin and evil. That is God's wrath. Take the organization MAD. Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. Now, this group of ladies, this organization, is it fueled by irrational hatred and uncontrolled rage because these ladies are just prudes who don't want people having a good time on the weekend? No. They are consistently and decisively opposed to drunk drivers because drunk drivers kill innocent people. And so God hates sin and evil because He is fiercely and forcefully opposed to anything that destroys His good world and the people who are made in His image. God, as being illustrated, does not want us bound and controlled by our sin, and so He hates it. So if you think about it that way, God's wrath, Wrath is actually the reasonable reaction of a loving, holy, good, and beautiful God. Jeremiah goes on in this passage to describe why God is so opposed to sin. Look at the nature of sin. In verse 8, chapter 6, he says, No one repents of his wickedness. No one. In chapter 9, verse 5, he says... They weary themselves with sinning. Sin is pervasive. It's pervasive. It affects every human heart. It infects every human heart. And we don't just sin every once in a while, do we? We sin constantly. It's pervasive. Secondly, sin is unnatural. Look at chapter 8, verse 7. He says that the birds of the air understand God's design for how to best live. They know when it's time to migrate. But humanity, 
the crowning achievement of God's creation, people made in His own image with the ability to think and to reason, we don't understand God's requirements. We choose to defy God's design for us. Sin is unnatural. Number three, sin is based on lies. Look at verse 9. He says, they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? And look at chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. Let me read those. They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Beware of your friends. Do not trust your brothers, for every brother is a deceiver and every friend a slanderer. Friend deceives friend and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. They weary themselves with sinning. You live in the midst of deception. In their deceit, they refuse to acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Sin is not based on the truth of who God is or who we are in His image. It's not based on the truth of how the world works best and how we can best live. Sin is based on lies and deceit from the father of lies, the devil himself. Also, sin is shameless. This Verse 12 could not be a better descriptor of our culture today. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. Now, in the previous chapter, Jeremiah called the people out on all their shameless sinning. They mistreated the poor, the widows and the immigrants. They worshipped and made offerings to false gods. And then after doing all that, they still dared to come into the temple to worship God as if their hands were clean. They made worshiping idols a family activity. And they even sacrificed their own children to idols. And so, sin is destined for punishment. Look with me at verse 13 in chapter 8. I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, there will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. Why are we sitting here gathered together? Let us flee to the fortified cities and perish there. For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and given us poisoned water to drink because we have sinned against Him. We hoped for peace, but no good has come. For a time of healing, but there was only terror. The snorting of the enemy's horses is heard from Dan. All the neighing of their stallions, the whole land trembles. They have come to devour the land and everything in it, the city and all who live there. See, I will send you venomous snakes among you, vipers, they cannot be charmed and they will bite you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah here uses imagery that denotes pain and destruction. He, he uses illustrations like working hard in your vineyard only to have your vines bear no grapes or in your orchard but only to have your fig trees bear no figs. It's as if you, you work hard to get a good education and to, to get a good degree and a job and you build a career and for what? You realize that your life has been wasted. It's as if you're thirsty, but the only water around you has been poisoned. It's as if creation itself and the laws of nature have turned against you. Paul uses similar imagery in Romans 8.22 and he talks about the effects of sin. He says, the whole creation has been groaning as if in the pains of childbirth. 
So this here in Jeremiah 8 is not just some random punishment that God just kind of dreamed up to throw upon His people. He's describing the natural effects of sin. When we try to live apart from the giver of life, when we try to make the world work contrary to how its Creator designed it, these are the results that we get. If I decide to try to break the laws of nature and climb up here onto the roof and just take, take a step off the side of this building, what would happen? Bad things. You guys probably have to form a pulpit committee pretty quick. Why do we think that breaking God's moral laws are no different than breaking His physical laws? Breaking God's moral laws has just as devastating, if not more devastating, consequences than breaking His physical laws. And when a society, a family, or a church persists in such rebellion, eventually God gives them over to their sinful lifestyle. Paul writes about this as well in Romans chapter 1, verse 28. He says, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And for this reason, God hates sin. And we should hate sin. But Jeremiah goes on. Because God is holy, we should hate sin, yes, but he also says that because God is love, we should love sinners. Just as I said about God's wrath, God's love isn't some irrational emotion based on the whim of how you make God feel about you. When I say that Jesus loves me, it's not that He loves me with like this crazy infatuation kind of love for me. Rather, the agape love of God is an active, intentional desire to will the good of another. That's what agape means. It's an active, intentional desire to will the good of another. See, God's love for us is not primarily an emotion. It's His divine desire for our well-being. Think of God's love for you like the love of a parent for their child. God knows what's best for you. He wants what's best for you. And He was willing to leave heaven and be born as a human and die the death of a criminal in order to give you what He knows you need the most, and that is to turn away from your path of rebellious sin and turn to Him for life eternal and abundant and to the full. That is not a permissive, whatever-goes kind of love, is it? It is a fierce love that will do anything to ensure that you have an eternal home in heaven. And sometimes that means that God the Father has to discipline His children, doesn't it? But He never disciplines us out of anger, 
but always out of His passionate love for us. But it's not just that God loves sinners. God's people should love sinners as well. Jeremiah didn't just come to see sin the way God sees sin, but he also came to see the sinful people around him as God sees them through the loving eyes of a father. Listen to what he says in verse 18, chapter 8. Read along with me. This is Jeremiah speaking. He says, O my comforter in sorrow, my heart is faint within me. Listen to the cry of my people from a land far away. And what are the people crying? Is the Lord not in Zion? Is their king no longer there? Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their worthless foreign idols, God asks. And the people say the harvest is past, the summer has ended, and we are not saved. And Jeremiah says, since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wounds of my people? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. And then the grief is too much to bear. And he says, oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers so that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. Notice how Jeremiah identifies with his suffering people. There's no sense of moral superiority here. There's no holier-than-thou attitude. Jeremiah doesn't feel like they're getting what they deserve. No, in verse 20, Jeremiah says, we are not saved. He identifies with the people's suffering. In verse 21, Jeremiah says that he feels the wounds of God's judgment in his own body. He says, since my people are crushed, I am crushed. He is gripped by horror and mourns for their sins. And he longs to find some remedy, something to comfort the people in their pain. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Now Gilead was an area east of the Jordan River that was well known for this healing balm that was produced from the resin of the balsam trees. But even this, even the best comfort and medicine that money could buy for that time and place could provide no comfort. And this thought drove Jeremiah to tears. Weeping day and night for the slain of my people. Do you think Jeremiah loved the sinners around him? Do you? Do you think Jeremiah loved the people around him suffering for their sin? Yes. And I can't help but think that Jeremiah's feelings and haunting words are but a foreshadow of what Christ Himself felt and thought as He suffered on the cross and took our sin and shame upon Himself. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. And the horror of sin separating Him from the Father even for a moment gripped His heart on that cross. And though there may not be a bomb in Gilead, Isaiah tells us by His stripes we are healed. We need to take a page out of Jeremiah's playbook. We need to rediscover the lost art of mourning. Especially mourning over our sin and the sin around us and how broken God's good world has become. And that's Jeremiah's third point. Because we love, we should mourn. 
Because we love, we should mourn. Let's pick it up in chapter 9, verse 17. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Consider now. Call for the wailing women to come. Send for the most skillful of them. Let them come quickly and well over us till our eyes overflow with tears and water streams from our eyelids. The sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How ruined are we? How great is our shame? We must leave our land because our houses are in ruins. Now, O women, hear the word of the Lord. Open your ears to the words of His mouth. Teach your daughters how to wail. Teach one another a lament. Death has climbed in through our windows and has entered our fortresses. It has cut off the children from the streets and the young men from the public squares. Say, this is what the Lord declares. The dead bodies of men will lie like refuse on the open field, like cut grain behind the reaper with no one to gather them. In Jewish culture, mourning was an art form. And there were professional mourners, usually women, who would be hired to come to a funeral, just like we would you know, pay for flowers and all this stuff. You'd pay for mourners to come. And they would weep and they would wail, this, this, this very loud wailing. And that was part of the Jewish culture. Not exactly part of our culture, is it? That's kind of frowned on today. I, I've not been to many funerals where there was open wailing at the funeral. Public weeping today in our society is seen as a sign of weakness. Or mental instability. You know, it's, it's usually one or the other. Did you know that Sir Winston Churchill, who worked very hard to convey this manly, macho persona, would often cry uncontrollably, even in public? Did you know that? And when he had one of these bouts of uncontrollable weeping, he would just apologize to his friends and say, I'm sorry, I'm a blubberer. Imagine that. One of the greatest statesmen of the 20th century, a larger-than-life figure in world history, felt the need to apologize for his tears. Why? Because our society feels scandalized by our mourning rather than blessed by it. But here, God calls His people to mourn and weep. Even the professional mourners are called to hurry up Come quickly without delay and wail over us. And they're commanded to teach others to mourn, especially their children. See, God values His people mourning over sin. He wants that to characterize our hearts. But that kind of seems backward to us today, doesn't it? I mean, Matt and Ben, when you go to these, you know, if we go to these church growth conferences or a youth conference, you're reading a church growth book, it tells us to be upbeat and positive and cater to the felt needs of our audience. I mean, think about those booming mega churches with their coffee bars and their hip praise bands. Sorry, guys. I... And, and it's like, well, that's what we need. We need more of that if we want to reach our culture for Christ, right? Jeremiah would say, no. We need more weeping and wailing. We need more ashes and sackcloth. Because as one commentary writer explained, conviction must of necessity precede conversion. A real sense of sin must come before there can be a true joy of salvation. Those who are going to be converted and who wish to be truly happy and blessed are those who first of all mourn, or as Jesus said, blessed are they who mourn for they will be comforted. 
when is the last time that you wept? I mean really wept over a lost friend or family member. Can you recall a time lately that you actually shed tears over the gender confusion of our culture? Or the perversion of God's gift of marriage? Or for the millions of pre-born babies who are being slaughtered in their mother's wombs? For the countless children going to bed hungry and cold? For the widows suffering in silence with no one to care? For true racial injustice, systemic poverty, and the drug epidemic that's destroying lives and families and communities? When's the last time you wept for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world? Have you ever wept for these things? Will you weep for them? Will you answer the call to mourn? Will you be like Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross and despised the shame? Because when we endure the reality of our sin-sick world and despise the shame of being broken and humbled and mourning over it, then we will discover true joy. When we mourn as God mourns, we'll be blessed with His comfort. And that's Jeremiah's last point. Because we mourn, we will be comforted. Listen to what he says in verse 23. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Once again, we have to understand a definition of what true joy is. It's not some frivolous, giggly emotion. Joy is actually very serious business, and sometimes it's even hard work. In verses 23 and 24, Jeremiah repeatedly used the word boasts. Some translations may say glory. The Hebrew word is halal, as in hallelujah. It's the Hebrew word that means praise. We aren't to give praise to or find joy in our wisdom, strength, or riches. These are fine. They're useful. But they will not be the ultimate source of our comfort. It isn't in our own wisdom or strength or resources that we can establish some kind of utopia here on earth and cure all the ills of humanity. Rather, it is in understanding and knowing God and His Gospel that He is the only one who can bring kindness to human hearts. It is only God who can restore true justice and make people's hearts to know, love, and do what is right. The kind of comfort God provides to a sinful, broken world so far transcends what this world has to offer that you can literally say it's out of this world. Our Old Testament reading from Lamentations, if you'll turn there just a few pages over, right after Jeremiah's Lamentations, and Lamentations is written... By Jeremiah, it's his lamentations, it's his prayer, his cry to God on behalf of the people. It's, it's the full expression of his brokenness for the sin around him and for the suffering of his people. And in, Jer- in Lamentations chapter 3, we get a, a glimpse of hope. It's not all gloom and doom. Listen to what he says here in verse 22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions 
never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for Him. The Lord is good to those who hope in Him, to the one who seeks Him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. So in other words, yes, there's a time of, of judgment. There's a time of reprimand, a time of discipline. But, verse 31, men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though He brings grief, He will show compassion. So great is His unfailing love. God is holy. We are sinful. But God is love. And He loves us sinners. We often fail to grasp both how terrible sin is and how loving God is. And as a result, we don't take God's call for us to be holy seriously enough. And we aren't overwhelmed as we should be by His grace and mercy toward us. Timothy Keller wrote this, You are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine. You are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine. And you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope at the same time. The cross of Christ is the best picture of both the seriousness of sin and the graciousness of God. He hates sin, yet loves you so much that through the person of Christ, God took your sin and shame upon Himself. And when He died, He took our sin to the grave. As the song says, amazing love. How can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Will you come today, repenting of your sin, turning from your wickedness, turning to the God who loves you that much? If you're here today and like Kenny was a year ago, you realize that you're lost, that you're living in sin, that you know that God loves you, he loves you, but He hates your sin. And you want to come today and say, God, forgive me for my sin and live in me. I want to live for you. I will help you do that as we sing in just a moment. But Christian, let me ask you this. Do you hate sin as God does? Or is there some sin in your life that you've grown to tolerate? Maybe even love. Now sometimes we have our pet sins. And we kind of keep those tucked away. And we don't really want to confess and expose those. Well, I want to tell you that God is calling you now to take that sin and come down and lay it at this altar and walk away. And leave it at the foot of the cross. Let God today develop within you a holy hatred for that sin. Because I promise you, you'll never progress one inch in your walk with God until you do. You cannot grow as a Christian and harbor a sin in your life that you refuse to hate and you refuse to confess and you refuse to give up to God. And let me ask you this too, Christians. Do you love the sinners around you the way God does? Will you go to any lengths to express God's love to them? Will you risk sharing the good news 
with them. Until we mourn the sin in our lives and our world, until we mourn and are broken over the lostness around us, we will never know the blessed comfort that God longs to give.